Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're still in Ephesians, and one of the problems that I think Ephesians is addressing is a, a kind of problem in philosophy that is the relationship between the universal and the particular. Really, the question of the very nature of reality. That is, do we start with particular things and add them all up and get to the universal or vice versa? Or if we put it in Christian terms, where do we begin? Do we begin with an abstract idea of God? Or do we begin with the person and work of Christ? Do we know who God is apart from Christ and then fit Christ to the idea of God? Or do we know God through Christ and fit our understanding of God to the person and work of Christ? And there are theological systems and there are forms of Christianity that are going to take our alternative approaches to this. The theme of Ephesians is that the particular person and work of Christ is the means to the universal. And this is pictured variously in terms of a body, biologically, or in terms of architecture, in terms of a temple. In 4.16, the body, you know, where the members are connected together and grow. From where, in verse 16, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Early up in the verse, it talks about a unity. There is one body, one spirit. You know, the problem of the one and the many. Well, here's the resolution. We arrive at the oneness of all things. You were called in one hope of calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So architecturally, the church is presented as a cosmic temple with the apostles and prophets built upon the foundation of Christ. And this is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. We talked that the original temple was a microcosmos depicting the entire universe and depicting then a dividing wall in between heaven and earth, in between God and man, and in between people. And in Ephesians, Paul's saying that dividing wall is broken down. That the new temple is one that in which God has come to dwell with man and men dwell together in peace. Let me put this problem of the particular and the universal in the language that we're facing now on the streets. In the tension between Black Lives Matter with its focus on black experience and the focus on all lives matter with its focus on the universal. I think it's another way, it's another example of the problem of the particulars and the universals. The question is if you can go to the former, all lives matter, or the universal, 
without prior and exclusive focus on the latter. Black Lives Matter, or the particular. And of course the danger, really the danger as demonstrated certainly in the past hundred years, but maybe the past several hundred years, is shown in that the leap to the universal conceals particular vested interests. The forms of exclusion which give rise to imperialism, which give rise to the death camps in Nazi Germany, which gives rise to the exploitation of the third world by the first world. I think we just experienced the bloodiest century in all of human history. And it is a century that began with the Enlightenment move directly to the universals. Ideology or idealism philosophically. And the question is, in an order where all lives matter in general, will some lives in particular have to be sacrificed, overlooked, or suppressed for the universal? Now, if the logic escapes you, think for a minute. One man must die that the nation would be saved. That is, that Caiaphas intones the idea that the universal reigns over the particular, and that is the logic that killed Christ. Those who blithely intone, you know, what may seem to be the higher principle, the universal principle, all lives matter, may be prone to be blind to the particular. And historically it's clear that where the universal precedes the particular, maybe there's a kind of a wink and a nod, perhaps unconscious, suppressed, as to which group does not fit the universal. The Jewish tension with their own scriptures, you know, this is part of the problem in the Old Testament. How do you reconcile the specific focus on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 brothers. And then you read these passages in the Old Testament talking about all peoples are going to come through Israel, all nations. Or to state it in the Greek version of the problem, there are two words in Greek for life, zoe and bios. And the idea to get from a shared life to the specifics, this is in Aristotle, it's there in Plato, he talks about the need to pass from nature into culture. So there's natural zoe, a kind of shared life, and the city of man then organizes life for the Greeks. But it's not inclusive of any and all life. Clearly some life must be excluded. Animal life, slave life, foreigner life, actually feminine life seems to be excluded from the Greek polis. All life matters for the Greeks, but what constituted life is established then through the particulars of the exception. And at the very root of the human polity, it is structured around the necessity of exclusion of one form of life. And I'm going to give this a name. It's called homo sacer. That is bare life. It is only where bare life is structured and ordered. That is, you have to take bare life and order it in the city before it becomes what Aristotle calls the good life. 
What Paul is picturing is the constitution of a new people out of these two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. One new man from out of Jews and Gentiles. He's not saying we get rid of them as forms of life. We're not excluding them. But out of the two, there is one new man. You are no longer aliens and strangers. You're fellow citizens. Jewish identity was built upon exclusion. Exclusion of Gentiles. Gentile identity was built upon the power of the state or the sovereign power to establish itself through exclusion. And this is where we get the idea, the exception proves the rule. Homo saker is stripped. That is, if somebody is homo saker, not a citizen, not part of the polis, think Jesus here, then they are exposed to the potential of being killed legally. And this power of death, you know, deciding who dies, who is outside of the city, that is the establishment of the life of the city. That's what's meant by life. And this, of course, describes who killed Christ and why they killed him. He dies outside of the city of man, beyond law and religion, reduced on the cross to bare life. You know, here's the words of Pilate, Behold the man. But there is barely a man. There is a slave dying on a cross because it's only slaves that would be submitted to such a torturous death. Christ, as the exception, however, forever exposes the basis upon which inclusion and universality are constructed in the human city. The point of the gospel is that the universal, God, is not to be had apart from the particular, the incarnate Christ. And the most pertinent particular of the Christ is that he died, he was lynched, he was crucified outside the city gates, outside the city of man. Christ as homo saker is the exception beyond exception. He exposes forever the place of exception as the place of God. Where is God? It is the one who is on the cross outside of the city. And it was those who presumed to overlook the man that are responsible for his lynching and perhaps every lynching. In this establishment of human sovereignty, human rule, the true sovereign, God, is excluded. God is on the lynching tree and is excluded by those who would kill him. They would gain life, in fact, by killing him. There's no mystery as to who might be most prone to dispense with a particular life, a bare life, an uncounted life, a life that has no qualities of the good life. It will be those who presume to be able to distill the universal without reference to an overlooked sort of particular. This is Jesus' ministry, to bring the overlooked, the oppressed, the poor, the outcast, to give them a voice. His ministry is to particular individuals. The very depiction of judgment is 
not whether we have our abstractions, our universals in place, but whether we have fed the hungry, whether we have provided water to the thirsty when we've met them. And so Ephesians might be said in some ways to be about the universals, but the way that we get to the universals is through the particulars, a breaking down of a particular dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The hostility between kinds of people was canceled. They became one new nation. They're built on this new foundation. Paul expands his speech describing the mystery revealed. You know, that's the, the picture in Ephesians that the gospel is the mystery revealed. And the mystery revealed is this. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. Those who had no place in the city of the Jews are now found in the very center of the temple. Maybe one of the shaping forces in American theology has been the failure that I'm describing. The failure to start with Christ and the reality of Christ. Reinhold Niebuhr, I'm just using as an example of this, but he's been considered the most popular of American theologians. He begins with what he calls realism. We have to begin with the reality of the world and work from there. His Christian realism was admired by Hubert Humphrey, John Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, even Barack Obama has said that Reinhold Niebuhr is his favorite theologian. His theology is ever focused on an abstract universal. He is willing to continually delay justice because the universal in some way is removed from the particular situation that we're a part of. And so he really presumes the present reality dictates our theology. I'm not saying there aren't good things in Niebuhr's theology, but when Jim Crow segregation was knocked down, he thought that was good, it allowed for change, but he also praised the Supreme Court ending of segregation gradually, slowly, with all deliberate speed, opening a loophole to delay integration. And so Niebuhr's call for gradualism, patience, prudence, was during the period in which Willie McGee was lynched, Emmett Till was lynched, M.C. Mack was lynched. This was the reign of the period of lynchings. He sounds like a southern moderate, more concerned about not challenging the cultural traditions of the white south than achieving justice for black people. When Martin Luther King Jr. asked Reinhold Niebuhr, the American theologian, the most famous of theologians, to just sign a letter to President Eisenhower to protect the children that were being integrated from violence. He refused, he declined. And in the end, America's theologian, maybe American theology, seemed to fall with those sorts of liberals that Martin Luther King, he actually thought were more insidious than just blatant racists. Niebuhr in his silence on lynching displays his own blindness 
and the inherent problem of beginning with a shared universal, an imagined or agreed upon universal. To state it simply, I believe this sort of American theology misses the gospel. Paul refers to the gospel as the mystery revealed, but some are still confounded by the mystery. What's revealed? That people, Jews and Gentiles are one. The thing that splits them no longer defines the church. And so Paul begins his talk about the mystery about bringing together, actually this is the bringing together of all things in heaven and earth. Ephesians is describing an unfolding reality. It's presently unfolding. It's not the reality of the world, but it's God's reality. It's not the reality of human culture. It's not the reality of sin. That's not what determines our understanding. That's not what determines our ethic. That's not what determines our action. Where we imagine we have access to reality apart from the church and apart from the word of God, we're going to formulate that understanding by the dictates of the world, by the specifics and particulars of the world. And in fact, we will fail to have access to the reality revealed to us in Christ. And so we have to begin with the word of God, with the reality of the church. This was already proven to Niebuhr. He should have seen this. Niebuhr was friends with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in World War II was a student of Karl Barth. It was Barth who said, we have to begin with the word of God. The Nazis, the state church said, no, we begin with reality as we have it. And of course, there are two churches in Germany. There was the pro-Hitler church, the Nazi church, the German Christian church, and there was the confessing church. Karl Barth then gives us the basis, I believe, in founding our understanding on the word of God and not the dictates of national socialism, not on the dictates that we're surrounded by. James Cone is an American black theologian who credits Karl Barth for his own turn away from the racist church, and he meant by racist the black church that he was raised in, to a different reality. And he says it's through this understanding that he escaped his American theological education. He insists that we have to encounter the word but of course, where do we encounter the word? We encounter the word in the particulars of the church. Just as the beginning with the word allowed the confessing church to challenge Hitler, Cohn is going to challenge in his lifetime. He died in 2015. But he's going to challenge American racism. He's raised in Arkansas under Jim Crow. His father is continually, he's a dignified black man in the community, but because he's dignified, he's in continual fear of being lynched in Arkansas. And he comes to recognize that the definitive symbol of black fear and subjugation and of white supremacy is the lynching tree. The singular access, he says, that I came to have to the cross is recognizing the cross in the lynching tree. 
They put Christ to death by hanging him on a tree, Acts 10.39, excluding his life as one of those lives that mattered. The power elites who order the valuation system of the polis, of the city, required this death outside of the city. So too every human organization of lives that matter will necessarily make this demarcation with the blood of those lives that do not matter. Paula Fredrickson describes crucifixion. Crucifixion was a Roman form of public service announcement. Do not engage in sedition, as this person you see on the cross, or your fate will be similar. The point of the exercise was not so much the death of the offender, but getting the attention of those watching. Crucifixion, first and foremost, is addressed to an audience. And those at Golgotha, the site of the first century, it was a first century lynching. And it would seem natural to draw out the parallel in theology in this country, in that period, in this period. And yet there is no place for the lynching tree in American theological reflection. Isn't this silence, Conas, a kind of condemnation of this theological tradition? The crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans in Jerusalem and the lynching of blacks by whites in the United States are so amazingly similar that one wonders what blocks the American Christian imagination from seeing the connection. The silence in regard to lynching, the very possibility, of course, of lynching, but the inability to see the cross in the lynching tree must mean that the reality of the cross in some way remains invisible. Those who oppress and lynch in the name of Christ, they were always good Christians, right? Have been undoubtedly guilty of apostasy. But those that cannot name the apostasy continue in that same blindness. And that's the grand danger that we continue to face. The point of the cross and the point of the gospel is not to validate the way of our culture. It's not to validate the nation. It's not to validate the way that cities and cultures organize themselves. It is to upset that order. Where all lives matter is the starting point. The danger is that some lives matter more immediately while others matter theoretically and one can thus be satisfied with future or theoretical equality and justice. In other words, where all lives matter, or where the universal is the starting point, the life extinguished on the cross, the life extinguished on the lynching tree, the life of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, Eric Gardner, how many uncounted others, clearly do not count as lives that matter, but serve to affirm the life that really counts, the life of the lynch mob the life of the representatives of the culture that would carry out such murders. And so the life that matters is that upon the cross, that upon the lynching tree. The point of the cross is not that Christ died so that we do not have to. The point of the cross is it's a model. 
We are to take up our own cross. We are to follow Christ. As God's people, we identify with those who take up crosses, those who are on crosses, those on the lynching trees. We do not count ourselves or identify ourselves as part of the mob. So there is an undoing of hostility, Paul says, an overcoming of hatred in 2, 13 to 14. Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That hostility is no longer what defines us. Christ has broken it down. The barrier between God and creation, Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, Americans, you know, you can just go on, that we continually divide ourselves against who we're not. The world depends upon its dividing walls. But this is not the reality that defines us. Paul says you're no longer Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, male or female, but we're all found as one in Christ Jesus. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And so I'm afraid that what we may miss in all lives matter is the focus on the particularity of the cross. The focus on the particularity of the oppressed. The focus on the particularity of any oppressed people. Black lives, brown lives, foreign lives. Much like a negative theology which cannot predicate any determinate qualities of God, homo sacer, bare life, all life, is undistinguished life. So that what is excluded from the all is the suffering and humility of the particular life that we find in Christ. And to miss the fact that God in Christ identifies with the particular, with suffering lives, with outcast lives, is to miss the life that matters. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.